Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. It's almost the end of the year, which means that film critics everywhere are scrambling to put together their best of lists. Our episode on the top 10 movies of 2016 will be coming up just on the other side of the new year, at noon on Thursday, January 5th, 2017, here on WNHHLP 103.5 FM and newhavenindependent.org, with special guests Arnold Gorlick from Madison Art Cinemas and Dan Heaton from the Cheese Blabbery blog. So in the spirit of being as prepared as possible for that end-of-year show, for today's review-only episode, we're going to shine a light on a few smaller, critically acclaimed movies that may have slipped under your radar when they came out in limited release earlier in the year. I'll be joined by Lyric Hall Theater's Joe Fay for reviews of Jeremy Sunye's Green Room and Trey Edward Schultz's Cretia, two low-budget, independent dramas that know how to make the most of confined spaces, unexpected violence, and the absurdity of the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and how we act in extreme situations. You like the connections I was able to make there. It's, it was a bit of a stretch, but we'll, we'll see if it we'll see if it holds true. On the second segment of the show, WNHH station manager Lucy Gelman and I will share a few thoughts on Tom Ford's new Nocturnal Animals. One more bit of quick business about that best of show before we start our reviews. Um, I'd love it if you, the listener, participated in our best of 2016 show. So if you're up for it, please call 203-479-0376 sometime between now and January 5th and leave a short message with your name, where you're from, and a few sentences about your favorite movie of 2016. I'll make sure to include your voicemail in the radio show and the resulting podcast. So again, that number is 203-479-0376. Now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce my movie reviewing buddy for the day, Joe Fay. Joe is a movie programmer at Lyric Hall Theater in Westville, a bookseller at William Reese Company, and a frequent guest on Deep Focus, most recently on episode 55 when we talked about his time at the Alamo Drafthouse in Dallas and his love for Joe Dante's The Burbs and Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Joe, welcome back to the show, and it's great to have you on in reviewing capacity. It's great to be here. Okay, so here's the hopefully not too convoluted intro for Green Room. About 20 minutes into Green Room... Jeremy Sunye's claustrophobic 2016 drama about a punk band traveling the Pacific Northwest in desperate search of paying gigs, the band's guitar player announces to the group that he's got a dumb idea. They're backstage at a club filled with skinheads, big angry white men wearing boots and braces, swastika tattoos emblazoned on their arms, and Pat, the scrawny, sincere guitarist played by Anton Yelchin, suggests that they open with a cover. Cut to the band on stage, and Pat's dreamy prankster courage has turned into palpable terror, but the band is committed, and so they open full force with a cover of the Dead Kennedys' 1981 song, this is the radio-friendly version, Nazi Punks, F Off. And a few of those lyrics are, Punk ain't no religious cult. Punk means thinking for yourself. You ain't hardcore because you spike your hair when a jock still lives inside your head. Nazi Punks, Nazi Punks, Nazi Punks, F Off. So needless to say, singing Nazi punks F off to a bunch of angry Nazi punks on their home turf is not the brightest of ideas. It's mischievous, reckless, anti-authoritarian, naive, a moment's glory exchange for a world of imminent pain. So now for the question for you, Joe. I'm eager to hear what you thought of the movie, but I want to ask first if you think that that exchange of glory for pain is worth it when it comes to Green Room. Are you happy for the rare moments of countercultural satisfaction that comes from watching a smart, gruesome, low-budget indie about a punk band versus their neo-Nazi captors? Or do you wish you had turned off the movie and gently asked Pat and his band to end their tour early and make the long drive home to Arlington, Virginia instead? Oh, no, I, you could never ask a band like that to do anything that their you know, punk ethos would tell them not to do. You know, they, I think they open with that song precisely because of the situation they're in you know you can't tell a punk band what to do and nor nor should they listen to you if you try um so yeah no i i i wasn't i i was happy that the movie kept going uh and because the the joke i'm I'm obviously watching green room is not akin to the danger one puts oneself on stage when singing about nazi punks in front of nazi punks right but i do think that you are making a a sacrifice of sorts, maybe just in the world of entertainment, when you sit down and say, I'm going to watch a movie that is kind of unrelentingly tense, but also realistically gruesome and violent. And I wondered, did you think this movie earned the realistic violence that it portrayed, or was it just uh, kind of icky for you? 
I don't think it's gratuitous at all. Uh, I think in order to have been gratuitous, uh, first of all, it, uh, it's believable to me that punks get get in front of Nazis and and make them mad, and then violence results because of that. Because these are people who are naturally uh, thin skinned, and so um, you know, look as a forty year old guy looking back, you know, it'd be nice to pull Anton Yelchin's character aside and say, "You might not want to do this," but that's not up to me. Uh, so I think the movie does earn the 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 plot drive that it takes uh and in order to have be gratuitous violence there are moments of immediate and shocking violence in this but they don't last very long and i think the fact that they don't linger on the violence that happens uh is to the credit of the filmmakers and I think that the so I, I think if this this movie definitely has a punk ethos to it. But one of the things that I think um, filmmaker Jeremy Sunier does so well between this and also his previous movie Blue Ruin mm-hmm. is that he one he describes the the kind of happenstance and arbitrariness of violence. And right. when you're put in extreme situations, you go in thinking that you're going to act a certain way. And that's the kind right. of mentality that we see the punk kids embodying in the first 20 minutes, right? They're hard playing, hard drinking, hard living. They're not necessarily happy, right. but they're living according to a code that they think yeah. kind of justifies their existence on the road. Right. Uh, they w- And this is perfectly kind of encapsulated in this, this trope that runs through the movie of what's your desert island band? The first First time that these that these uh, are the band members are asked the asked they all say these hardcore punk bands you know, right. they're saying the misfits the damned right right, um, right. and then the second time around when things are a bit more tense and they're kind of reflecting upon how they actually are going to respond right uh, the bassist says Simon Garfunkel the drummer right. says Prince yeah. um, and that gag kind of repeats a few times but I love I think it partly why the movie works so well for me and why that violence is earned is because we get both both sides of the coin of punk we get the brashness right and we get the vulnerability we get the fact yeah. that these kids are putting themselves in really dangerous situations and are reckless but also they're scared too but i don't think they know that going in you know if if they'd had any inkling that they were walking into the devil's playground they may have been they may have pulled back a little bit I, i'm not sure um but the fact is that that no one could really have known that they were walking into a place where you know, Patrick Stewart is the head of this sort of cabal of, of you know, the black market drug runners or whatever they are. And so I don't think you can fault them for doing what they do. Um, I think they act fairly naturally and, and sort of along the lines of how kids in a punk band would act wherever they go if they don't know any better. Now, I'm I'm glad that you brought up Patrick Stewart because one again one of the things I'm so impressed with Jeremy Sunier is, is the way that he's able to create these incredibly rich, complicated, and surprisingly sympathetic while also being terrifying characters. Right. Let's start with Patrick Anti-heroes. Stewart for a second because yeah. he is our he's, he plays a character named Darcy who is the uh, the kind of ringleader and the owner of this neo-Nazi club right. in rural Oregon. Uh, we first hear him, of course through his voice, right? This is Patrick Stewart. This is Captain Kirk. Oh, yeah. This is Professor X. Um, we we get this the authority and also the calming presence of Darcy's voice. He appears as someone who's kind of potentially going to diffuse the situation. Right. But of course, this is not a character who is looking to diffuse the situation. He yeah. has a very specific agenda about maintaining his his power over and a certain group. And they've obviously been here before. You, know, you yes. can tell they've taken care of situations like this however many times before. Right. And he, I mean, he's someone who is ruthless, who it does not always have as firm a grasp on the situation as he thinks he does, as right. evidenced by where the movie goes. I mean, right. he, he is not necessarily the one who ends up on top. Right. But I love the way that Sunye um, subverts our expectations when we see Patrick Stewart. Right. This is right. not someone who we can rely upon for good. Right. We can maybe rely upon him for evil, and then ultimately we can't really rely upon him for at all for yeah. anything. And he never—it's sort of the seethingness, uh, this the, 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 everything. His emotions are sort of boiling right under the surface. You, and as far as I can remember, you never—he never really rises above this certain level of of just sort of menacing calm. You know, he sort of is very straight, and he never he never lashes out 
from what I remember. I, that, I think that's right. And he's never one to wield a weapon. He's right. never the aggressor. He is the one right. who kind of manipulates the pieces on the chessboard. He is right. pushing people to various places. But the genius—I mean, the genius of it is for me—is that he is not ultimately in control. I mean, he loses grasp of this because right. of his confidence and also because of where the movie wants to go. Right, but, it wants to go. Well, it just proves the old boxer's adage of, you know, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Right. You know, <laughs> and that's really on both sides in this movie. You know, the punks sort of have their thing and they, they go in and they decide to play this song and the Nazis sort of have this plan about how to deal with them and both of them... It, you know, proverbially get punched in the mouth and then all hell breaks loose. And, you know, in some ways the punks are kind of in a, a better position to start because even before we see them uh, in this incredibly vulnerable situation, we know that they're used to living on the edge, right. the edge of poverty, the edge of hunger. Like yeah. they, these guys are, are crashing anywhere they can. They, the right. movie opens with them literally crashed in a field of corn stalks because the, the driver fell asleep at the wheel. Right. And then they have to go siphon off some gas from a nearby skating rink. Yeah. These are guys who are, who are used to um, being resourceful and resourcefulness right. being so important to Sunye movies. Right. Um, and then when it comes to them having to survive in this neo-Nazi punk hellhole, right. they're, I don't know, maybe a bit more equipped than the guys who think they're in control. Right. And, you know, it, when you first started talking about the, the, the musicians in the van, I actually thought you were talking about the other, the other side of this. Because, yeah, these are also guys who live fairly close to poverty, even though they've probably got a stash of cash you know they can't they can't flash it around because they're of the the ways in which they're earning this money, and so uh, you know you have both sides here that live close to the bone, and yeah they have to be resourceful in all kinds of ways um, that that uh, I don't know that. I'm not sure where I was going with that. Yeah, no, no, they they do have to be restored, but kind of. I mean, if we begin to bring maybe Blue Ruin into the discussion, the previous right. movie that is about an amateur assassin played by um, Megan Blair, right? Uh, who is someone caught up in the cycle of kind of hillbilly violence in right. rural uh, Virginia, Hatfield McCoy kind of stuff. Exactly, and he is someone who fashions himself. I mean, he. We, we open with him dumpster diving. He has right. kind of managed to in his car. live, at least survive by himself on the outskirts of society. And when he throws himself into this revenge fantasy, we see him kind of approaching different situations like pulling an arrow out of his leg right. that he thinks he knows how to do. So he right. buys all of the alcohol and the swabs. Yeah, he's seen it in the movie. You know? <laughs> and then he gives one tug and then the next scene we're in the hospital. Right. right. And so we know that these characters fashion themselves resourceful up to a point or self-sufficient up to a point. Right, right. And then we realize they don't have any more control over their destiny as anyone yeah. else in this room. Um, like, like Coen Brothers people. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's where the Coen Brothers comparison comes in. But yeah. if Patrick Stewart is one pretty incredible character here, I I want to make sure we talk about Macon Blair's character, Gabe, yeah. Yeah. because he is, he's unlike any other character that I've seen in any movie. Talking about in Green Room? In Green Room. Yeah. This is, he plays the kind of Nazi housekeeper. <laughs> he is the guy who, yeah. he, he is always being belittled by the owners of the club. He's always trying to clean up situations, but yeah. He doesn't know how to clean things up. Right. <laughs> like, he's pretty hapless. What'd you, what'd you make of making Blair? Here? I honestly thought he had this look of he's the smartest guy in their, in their family. And he just doesn't want any part of this. And he would get out if he had any idea how to do it. But he knows that he's in a mob and you don't leave the family. And so he sort of resigned himself to this, to this life that he doesn't want. And it's written all over his face, I think, for, for most of the movie, if not all the movie. And um, I don't know. I, I really appreciated that he was sort of the most, the, we, had a sympath, we had an easily sympathetic character on that side of the fence so that we, we, can't, hate, we can't just hate them all. We can't just say it's, it's them versus, you know, it's us versus them or them versus them and easily root for one side over the other, because I think Macon Blair uh, prevents us from doing that. I'm, I'm so glad you brought up that issue of sympathy, because I'm not quite sure where 
my sympathy falls when it comes to making player character. Yes, yeah. he cer- he seems a bit more intelligent. He's certainly less outwardly aggressive and also a right. bit more hapless, which I think encourages everyone's right. sympathy. Um, he's also shunted into this thoroughly kind of emasculated role of the guy who's charged with cleaning up sure. all the stuff out. So the last scene we see him in, he's wearing his apron and he has his long, you know, rubber right. gloves on right. and he's washing up the blood. Yeah, he's the <laughs> runt. The you know, he's the runt of the litter. And uh, But I don't know, he is... He certainly doesn't go out of his way to help anyone in the band. Right? Right. He's not necessarily a benevolent force no, on no, the other not, side. Not at all. But he is a very human character. Yes. And so perhaps that's where the sympathy comes in. Yeah, and I think I think a great deal of that is due to Macon Blair being a very talented actor, you know, and, and as as in Blue Ruin. You know, he's just this guy that has a face he has eyes you want to watch and his eyes tell everything. And they you know, and I think he brings an an easy an easy sympathy to green room. So when we were emailing about this episode a little bit earlier in the week, you yeah. mentioned that um your initial impression was that you liked Blue Ruin a bit more right. than Green Room. And I think that the at least as I racked my brain about why I like Green Room quite a bit more actually than Blue Ruin. Yeah. I think part of it is Megan Blair's role in the movie. Here he is a supporting character. Right. And I think that 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 blankness, that helplessness, the like the scared vulnerability, but also just that mask of unpredictability. I love how that is something that is always kind of needling at the sides of the character. So it makes us laugh, it makes us afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, but we get to spend our times with with the Anton Yelchins and the Imogen Poots and these right. people who are a bit more expressive, but we also really understand where they're coming from and yeah. how scared they are. In Blue Ruin, I feel like the movie, if there's any flaw to it, it drags a little bit because this character is not just quiet, but he is only, like, he's so sad and he's so scared. And those two things, almost, they just, like, dominate the movie. They're the blueness of the movie. That's what I, that's what, and I think my argument would be a flip of of yours, is I love these sort of singular, uh, uh, deliberate, uh, some would call them plotting or slow or whatever, um, but I liked Blue Ruin because it had this pacing that wasn't too wasn't too fast, wasn't too slow, but got where it needed to go when it needed to get there. And it ultimately, I loved Blue Ruin, and it's a it's a silly reason, but a main reason anyway, is that it reminds me of uh, of a Texas movie. It reminds me of a movie, a simple revenge tale that uh, pits one family against another, and it it. it felt like uh, there's an, a Texas author named Joe Lansdale who writes these mystery stories where, again, you have this character who goes, uh, who goes after um, revenge in a way that he's not prepared for. And it's sort of a common theme in, in Lansdale's work. And the ending of Blue Ruin, and no spoilers, but the ending of Blue Ruin unfolds like the end of a Joe Lansdale movie uh, or the end of a Coen Brothers movie, as we talked before. Like you, you have a plan, you go in, and, and once people start, once real people start shooting guns, you really don't know what's going to happen. Right. And we get a, all the more poignant commentary on the futility of violence when it's right. not just that everyone ends up dead, it's like everyone ends up humiliated and then dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like you're not going to look cool when you and, die. And di- exactly. And dying in, in harsh and yeah. painful ways. Not, it's not the old, you know, shoot the the Indian off the horse and and they just you know or the cowboy and he just sort of grabs his stomach and rolls over I mean this these are they earn this pain yeah in in a very harsh way there's um I want to make sure to touch on one more thing in green room before okay. we uh, transition over to a Texas movie right truly in Cretia. right um, I think it takes place in Texas yes um but that is, well, one, I so appreciated the structure of Green Room. I mean, Green Room is just generically, in terms of genre, it's like very different from Blue Ruin. It's not yeah. a revenge fantasy, but rather it is a very tightly wound, almost like Alfred Hitchcock style ticking time bomb underneath right. the table. Exactly. You know exactly, you know the rules of, of this world. There's even a piece of paper that Darcy keeps. Says, These are all of the people who know about the band. <laughs> like, don't <laughs> add anyone to this. And you know exactly what they have to do. And I find that working within the kind of survival escape the room genre. Right. Um, both like ratchet is ratchets up the tension. Yeah. Per those like, 
generic conventions, but also right. we get these characters who completely defy it. Yeah. Um, and, and my, you know, call, saying Blue Ruin that I'd like Blue Ruin more than Green Room is not to denigrate Green Room whatsoever. I think it's also a, a sort of what mood are you in, you know? Because it, 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 Blue Ruin might strike me at, at a different time uh, better or worse than, than Green Room might at the same time. So, you know, they are different enough to offer um, offer things to like about them more than the other, depending on, really, on what you're doing that day. This is truly my last comment on Green Room, but you, <laughs> I couldn't help mention when you mentioned mood, because these movies do have colors, the first word of their title, right? And right. the way that Sunye um, constructs this completely consistent color scheme for each movie, right. and let's just talk about Green Room, since that's the one under discussion today, right. we have... We open with the green of the cornstalks. We have the green of the trees in the Pacific Northwest forests. We have the green lights reflecting on the rivers where the kids are campfire. We have the green of Darcy's hat. I mean, there's so much green used as both like primary and secondary right. kind of inflections in the movie. Right. And we get the, you know, it, green could be, you know, green's very famously like a symbolic color in The Great Gatsby, right? That that light blinking across yep. the, the Long Island Sound and it's right. it's jealousy, it's envy, it's greed. And we get right. that here, but also we have just like a coherent visual palette that's just beautiful to right, look at. Right. What, also, what did the green do? Green for you? is also money. You know, green is also life. Um, nature, right? We're in nature, the middle of yeah, the exactly. class. Yeah. Like get get me out of this green room and get me into the green field. You know, get me you know yeah, I mean I think you could you could look into this movie uh in, in and talk about green and really justify it however you want it to. But there's like, even beyond the symbolic value, there's like a stability to using a bunch of different like shades of the same color. Right. Just because movies are fundamentally visual thing. Like it's visual art. And so right. we're, um, we're processing it primarily through, through our eyeballs. And right. I love when someone pays so much attention to the use of color in a movie because it, it, I don't know, it could seem overdone, and yet somehow, I don't know, those 40 different shades of green seem just right. Yeah, and it's, you know, it, it's also going back to sort of the noir tradition of different gradations of the black and the white and the shadow. So That's I, such I, a good point. Yeah. Um, okay, before we transition to Cretia, I want to say you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I am with Joe Fay from Lyric Hall and William Reese Company, and we're reviewing a few smaller indie movies that may have flown under the radar when they came out in limited distribution earlier this year. So now we will give a few minutes to Kresha uh, before, uh, before we wrap up. Kresha is a, actually a much smaller movie than Green Room. Feature mm. film debut of director Trey Edward Schultz also follows a naive protagonist in way over her head, trapped in a confined place, unsure if she'll survive the night. But unlike the neo-Nazi rural Oregon club of Green Room, the setting of Schultz's tense 80-minute family drama is a spacious suburban Texan home, the natives, a sprawling multi-generational family of boisterous men and howling dogs, and the trapped protagonist, a middle-aged woman named Cretia, who abandoned her extended family and only child years earlier and is struggling to overcome various addictions and looking to reconcile with her estranged loved ones. Um, what'd you, what'd you make of Grisha, Joe? Um, it hit, it hit really close to home in certain ways because, you know, I've been in, in that house. I think a lot of people have been in that house for a family reunion or been in a, in a place where a family reunion happens or a holiday happens where maybe there's somebody there who it, it's been a long time. They've been through some stuff and you've never really talked to them about this stuff. And, you know, to me, it's, it was very, I've, I've been to countless Texas Thanksgivings where arm wrestling competitions start and people are running around the backyard with playing football. And so it was, it was really like stark watching, uh, it was almost like watching a home movie in certain ways, the, the setup for it. Um, you know, the Cresha herself, um, again, it's, I think you you mentioned earlier about the Hitchcockian time bomb under the table, and, and that's really just she's a walking time bomb. Right, she is the t we we know the stri the rules here, and the rules are Krisha's yeah. going to implode. Yeah, it's, just, it's just a matter, matter of, of when. Yeah, um, the one thing I was really struck with was uh, the use of the sound and the music in this movie. I thought was uh, really really well done. You know, you have the scene where she walks into the kitchen to start making the turkey, and there's just these 
this discordant sound going on everywhere and couple that with the ki- the the younger generation sort of wrestling with each other and the TV that's where we see the, the arm wrestling right that's on. where we see the yeah. football the football games on and they're you know when a when a good play happens they all just jump out of their jump off the couch and scream and you know she's just popped a couple of pills and you know you don't know whether those are the good kind or the bad kind and she's just in this kitchen and and it would be tense enough without this added layer of these sort of like cat on the piano kind of sounds and and stuff like that but adding them in is just like i wanted it i wanted to stop the movie at that point it's it's pretty overwhelming but i think in a very effective way and it's talk her, about, and it's it's her it's her, her, her yeah. perspective right so this is a movie i mean when you are working with such a small budget such a small cast and setting movies really are made in the editing room and this one is entirely i mean i i love the acting i think it's a great story but right. man, the way that trey edward schultz and his composer brian mccomer work together um to create tension out of things that otherwise would just be normal thanksgiving conventions right. like the arm wrestling like the football and i was thinking about the structure right. of this movie and because i was praising the structure of green room and this one really does have a three-act structure except it's oriented around the different substances that Cresha is abusing. First, right. we get the amphetamines. Then right. in the middle, we get the alcohol. And right. then we get the cocaine at the end. Yeah. And what you're, you're describing, maybe I think the best sequence, the most effective one, which is the amphetamine sequence after yeah. she pops a few pills. Uh, there are no cuts in the camera. We're sitting with her in the kitchen. Right. But everything is just a little too tense. Like the the brother in law is looking to answer his iPhone. He can't. Right. There are people jumping yeah, up and down in the living room. There are everyone's dogs moving. Barking. Yeah, the dogs. It's yeah. a jungle. Um, and then with the drunk sequence, um, Edward Schultz, to his credit, completely changes the both the soundtrack and the visuals. Mm-hmm. The aspect ratio becomes a bit wider. It we gets have darker. Nina Simone singing yeah. instead of this like really awkward, discordant kind of pit scene. Right, and we have everything in slow motion. I mean, she waltzes yeah. through the kitchen, and of course, ends in catastrophe. <laughs> And then uh, at the end with the... And you just co- know that's going to happen. It's that, I, When that thing happens, you can see it coming a mile away. How beautifully is that film, though, when it is happening? When yeah. we see the drip, the little drip, yeah. and then the big drip. And then the big drip, and, and then, then the, the whole thing uh, comes tumbling it's, down. Because you're hopeful. <laughs> when that first drip hits, you're like, oh, she's going to save it. You right know? the tray. Uh, yeah, the right tray. the tray. And, and she doesn't. And it it's the turning point. And then in the third sequence, when everything really explodes after she is both swigging vodka and doing cocaine in the bathroom and yeah. we return to or the, whatever it is the she's bathroom. popping out of those pills right something yeah. is snorting yeah um but we return the the bathroom is a place of and this is the, a lot of movies do this and i love it every time someone looks in a mirror you know that you're meant yeah. to reflect upon some existential crisis and she spends a lot of time looking in the mirror right and she spends a lot of time beating herself up and i right. think this if this movie has anything to say about addiction at least from my perspective it's that self-hatred is like the worst thing possible for reinforcing addiction. If you feel terrible about yourself and you right. feel betrayed and isolated, right. you're just going to go back. Yeah, nobody there, you know, she she shows up and she's, you know she's lonely inside because of the things that she's done and, and have happened to her in her life. And so she shows up lonely anyway. And then she shows up to this place and they sort of give cursory, you know, welcome and things like that. But then everyone leaves her alone for a while and she goes upstairs and she's alone you know her entire family is in this building including eventually her mother and she spends the first third of the movie by herself because she can't she you know i I can only imagine what's going through her mind it's uh, what from what i read it's been 10 years since she's seen any of these people including her son and so just to show up one day at thanksgiving and and to basically be shunned by your whole family couldn't feel good and th- i mean this movie is ki- kind of like green room it's we're not quite sure if it's a drama if it's a horror movie if it's a comedy yeah. mean, remember the title it's sequence all, it's this yeah. deep this deep red with Cresha written in black letters and she kind of presents as like a monster sometimes and yeah so i wonder i mean i know we're about to wrap up but i want to ask you we we're talking about sympathy in green room uh did you feel any sympathy for Cresha here is she the villain is she the um, vulnerable one or something in between yes yeah to all of it i mean she she is you know that addiction is you know a, a a dirty word you know addiction is a is a bad thing and it's it's something that um people need help with and yet on the other side you know certain people 
can only give so much. And you get the feeling that all these people in her family have given more than enough to try to help her. And, you know, you kind of feel like, well, if they'd just given this one day away and paid more attention to her and made her feel more welcome, would it have made a difference? And I think it might have. Um, They're afraid of her. I, they are, and they probably yeah. have a right to be. I mean, it, but, and you, th- and ultimately, it's like, well, you can't blame them for doing what they did, but you, you can't really blame her for doing what she did because it, she's an addict and it's a sickness. So I think, I think every, I think everybody in this, in this movie is to a certain extent a tragic character. Uh, and Krisha is just the most tragic. I, I think that the movie really hammers home that this type of addiction and kind of just complete severance of uh, family ties is a result of not just choices of individuals. Yes, she's making like a lot of terrible life choices, but you're right. This, this is an illness that she's dealing with and that's affecting the entire family. And before we leave Cretia, I mean, this guy for his first feature film, I think he's only 28, 29 years old. What an incredible filmmaking just sense for the camera placement and right. movement the soundtrack there's a lot of um i feel like a lot of david lynch vibes with that right. giant oversized turkey and reaching into the orifice <laughs> right. and even stepping in you remember when she steps in the puddle in the opening sequence yeah. on the lawn yeah absolutely and it's like right out of blue velvet with the with the, the worms finger. squirming yeah. underneath the right. surface of this beautifully manicured lawn right, like, right 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 like right. all all is not right in this picturesque suburban landscape oh there's, yeah there's God. something um, askew in the house. Do, do you feel like, is this a guy, uh, a director you're going to look out for? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, this this apparently played to great acclaim at South by Southwest. And uh, I th- I think I couldn't find whether this was Texas or not, but I think mm-hmm. it is. Uh, and it would make sense. It, it seems like a Texas movie. Um, but I, know, I also noticed that this movie was picked up by A24, the same distribution company that, picked up green room they uh, can really do no wrong they, they really can't incredible, it's amazing just incredible and also their first movie as a production outlet moonlight yeah <laughs> like i know come on a24 yeah they're they're, they're living a blessed life right now and i, I just uh, you know continue good luck to those folks um joe before we leave tell us about uh what what's happening at lyric hall oh, quickly what yeah can we yeah watch? when can we watch it tonight we have uh we're running uh, lewis jackson's christmas evil uh, AKA you better watch out, or I guess it's you better watch out, AKA Christmas evil. Um, this really strange sort of the first in line of these killer Santa movies, uh, made in the made in 1979, 1980 released, released in 80. It feels like a successor to Halloween, right? It, and that it is there's kind some like sexual yeah. childhood trauma in the beginning. Like yeah. he doesn't he walk down the stairs and see something, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some, there's some sexy Santa stuff that happens when <laughs> he's that he oversees <laughs> right. when he's a kid, and, and then, but it's odd. I mean, and it, I, I'm going to be introducing it tonight and sort of touch on the sort of European influences, filmic influences on this movie, which I didn't really see until I watched the commentary. And it, this guy, this guy name drops everybody from from uh, Fassbender to Kurosawa. I mean, it, all in this Killer Santa movie. So. I mean, and I, I'm convinced, as I am with a few other movies, and we can talk about this another time, but if you watch this movie with a French-language soundtrack, it's a masterpiece. Because it's just, it just it changes your expectations. I, I, sometimes I do that. He's a pensive character, right? He's got a lot to brood he, over. He does, he does, he does. And, it, you know, it's John Waters' favorite Christmas movie, so that, that should tell you something right there. Art House Joe over here. Yeah. And what's, so that's playing... Tonight, Tonight, Thursday, October 15th. Right, 7.30. Or December 15th. December 15th, yeah. 7.30. The 7.30, yeah. And then uh, Sunday night at 7, we're doing uh, we're running Toy Story with uh, a toy drive going on in, in, in relation to that. So you come to Lyric Hall, bring a new unwrapped toy uh, per person or per family, and uh, you can get in to see Toy Story at, at Lyric Hall. Sunday night at 7. Great. So we've yeah. got Christmas Eve tonight. October 18th. Toy Story Sunday. I mean, December 18th. <laughs> I go, go to the Lyric Hall calendar. Is yeah, lyrichallnewhaven.com. Great. Um, thank you so much for coming on the uh, show, thank you Joe, so much. for reviewing these movies, and we'll, we'll see you at Lyric Hall soon. All right. Thanks, Tom. Okay, coming up next, uh, Lucy Galman and I are going to share a few thoughts on Tom Ford's new movie, Nocturnal Animals. But first, let's hear a little bit of Ellison Jackson's song, Man from Lowell.
I'm cold and hungry, would you turn me away? And if I had no money, would you beg me to stay? Please tell me what you seek Please know that I am weak There's nothing but the sky above Forgotten my own name Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. And Lucy Gelman, our movie reviewing guest, was just grooving to that <laughs> Ellison Jackson song. So I was. I love that I'm sorry song, that Tom. this isn't live community TV, but community radio. So we'll post a video about that later. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but uh, now we're going to share a few thoughts on a, a new movie, a movie that's been getting a lot of critical acclaim uh, here at the end of the year in awards season sorts. Uh, Tom Ford's Nocturnal Animals, his follow-up to A Single Man with Colin Firth. Uh, So in Nocturnal Animals, Amy Adams plays Susan Morrow, an art gallery owner enmeshed in the glamorous superficiality and self-hatred and self-seriousness of the L.A. art world. She receives a copy of a manuscript of a new novel from her ex-husband, Ed Sheffield, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. And the rest of the movie cuts between the present story of Susan's life as a kind of depressed and disaffected gallery owner, the fictional story of the novel, which is a kind of West Texas crime thriller, and the memories of her romantic relationship with a younger, clean-shaven Ed. Um, Lucy, we saw this a few days ago, and I remember uh, as we left the theater, you were quite positive on the movie, but you also thought, you know, in a couple days, this movie's not going to stick with me. <laughs> Unlike Moonlight, which ha- I've been, you know, I've been ruminating upon for weeks after seeing it. Nocturnal Animals isn't one that's going to stick. So now, a couple of days later, has Nocturnal no- has Nocturnal Animals stuck in your mind at all? Um, no, not not a great deal. It's certainly a, a movie that I don't regret seeing, and I would I would recommend it to listeners um, in a heartbeat. But I think one of the reasons I enjoyed it is because it is delivered um, in kind of clean and and often just huge beauty uh with acerbic criticism on the contemporary art world which is uh is something that you know as an art historian in my past life i'm deeply familiar with and um i think if anyone wants to jump on the uh the criticism van for that i'm usually pretty receptive to it so the director of this movie tom ford is best known as a fashion photographer Right, he as like a high fashion photographer, yeah. uh, and this movie, along with Single Man, which I haven't seen, but I know you've seen, um, I think could be criticized for being a bunch of beautiful images and beautifully dressed people, kind of immaculately dressed people, especially within the frame story, the story, uh, I guess, outside of the West Texas fiction, um, when we have Amy Adams and her kind of high society art crew wearing these incredible dresses and moving around around. Uh, what is the artwork that she has outside of her house by the pool? Oh, the- yeah, yeah. That one of the opening shots is sort of a um, a tractor that's going to pick up a Jeff Koon sculpture because she the and her inflatable husband, poodle one, right? Because she and and her husband are living in relative poverty, which for them would probably still be more money than I make in a year or two. Yeah, I don't know if it's poverty, but they're certainly in financial disarray. Right. I mean, these are people who live in a world that values above all else not just money but the um the ostentatiousness and the just the clean cutness the overwhelming presentational aspect that money allows and so these people you know they still have the presentation but they're they're losing the money um and so they there seems to be some tumult there but tom ford he's not really interested in that right i i mean i get the sense that the only thing he really cares about here is the the drama of the West Texas story and the way that that fictional story relates to 
the real life of Amy Adams's gallery owner and then the memories of Amy Adams' gallery owner. Um, what did you think of those three stories and the way that they played together? Because that was the that was my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, well, I I think Tom Ford is is very interested in the confluence of high culture and low culture and what that means in imagery and then also what that means in narrative. And so I think kind of having this frame story within a story within a story is a great way to do that. I think as far as dialogue, not super strong. Um, you know, Tom Tom Ford, I don't remember a single man maybe as vividly as I should. Um, but I remember really enjoying it at the time that I saw it and I haven't watched it again. Um, but the dialogue in this movie was really lacking as was Amy Adams' ability to step into sort of the character of the Texas debutante um, or, or for that matter, a person from Texas. I think it came off as like, if you smush together someone from New Jersey and someone from York, England, that's sort of what her accent sounded like. Um, but I, I mean, I, I enjoyed it nonetheless. Um, I think the most interesting moments come from this West Texas story within a story where Jake Gyllenhaal is looking for justice and you kind of get this vigilante justice tale at the end. And it's, um, it's not really a psychological thriller. I thought it would be, it's not horribly violent, although there is violence. Um, but, but that sort of quest for what is right and what is just and how that's reflected in the love story that, uh, between Amy Adams and, and Ed, her first husband was interesting to me. I don't think it's the most successful movie, but... Uh. See, I, I think I have a slightly different read on this than you. I agree that the West Texas section, which has Jake Gyllenhaal's fictional character, you know, he's a father who's driving his mother and daughter out to Marfa uh, in the middle of nowhere, West Texas. They're run off the road by a bunch of kind of angry punk hooligans who wind up kidnapping his family and doing some pretty terrible stuff. And you're right, the rest of it plays out as a revenge fantasy. But I think that actually what worked best for me is, yes, I there were moments of tension and dread uh, and real horror in that sequence. Um, but the movie is much more interested in commenting on uh, what is like a an acceptable uh, form of masculinity. And I don't, and I think that that only really is um, played through, if if maybe even analyzed through the juxtaposition of the three different stories. In that we have in the memory section, we have this romantic young writer who is described as weak by Amy Adams' mother, who's described as too sensitive, too vulnerable, and then in the in the fictional section, we see that character weak, sensitive, but also kind of violently reclaiming his masculinity towards the end in this revenge fantasy. I think a big problem with it for me was that the the frame that's so important to this commentary masculinity was so uninteresting. I mean, the art world people were intentionally maybe just so detestable and superficial that it's it's almost like I, I get what you're criticizing, but I really don't even want to sit through the criticism because this is so poorly written and so bad, maybe even intentionally so. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I really don't think I think if this was trying to be a commentary on masculinity or femininity, for that matter, I really didn't think it did a very good job of that. This I mean, for me, sort of I'm recommending it to listeners because it's it's about two hours of entertainment. It will keep you entertained and it's visually entertaining as well. Um, I, I think it doesn't provide anything beyond stereotype as far as what what weak masculinity and strong masculinity. Yeah. No one and, ever emerges uh, above stereotype. I yeah. That's right. Yeah. Sort of. And especially within this Tarantino esque revenge fantasy in which the sheriff is the most interesting character. But I also think within femininity, I mean, you kind of have this, this like high class woman as, um, as a, a big witch at the end of the movie, you know, the, the more interested in class and status, she becomes and and wealth and also kind of the the show of having wealth and having assets um the the more antagonistic she becomes but and, don't, and don't so, you think the movie is inevitably a criticism of that type of wealth because she is someone who like atrophies over the film i mean where she ends up kind of deserted at this restaurant and isolation being like the most terrible thing for anyone so insecure and so kind of wrapped up in superficiality to experience I don't think that she's, I think she's left on a somewhat um, 
maybe even sympathetic note because she is the one hurt at the end. She's the one hurting at the end on the, on screen. And um, I think that subverts the idea that she's strictly the villain, unless if we can also see villains hurt, which seems like a reasonable thing to expect to. I just didn't think this movie moved beyond anything we've already seen on screen. Um, I, I mean, it like it would have been much more interesting to me. So we kind of open with this montage of very fat women in, in very few clothes um, who are made up dancing at this gallery opening. And and, and it, these are morbidly obese women. Like, these yes. are incredibly obese women. They're older women. And yeah, I'm sorry. Can you take it away? Yeah. yeah. And, um, and one of the visual things I found so engaging was when uh, within the frame story, you have the sheriff and, uh, and the husband character walk into a saloon or a bar in West Texas um, so, you know, you've got scrubland on, on all sides of you and you see these women again, um, but they're, it, it's kind of the low culture version. So I think they're wearing uh, cowboy boots and, and very little else. And for me, like that was perhaps the most interesting point or, or, or part of of the movie. The rest of it was kind of like, oh, this is nice. I'm moving along with the narrative. I'm not bored. So I want to spend a second more on that opening sequence because it is within, I think, the, a section that you found maybe most compelling and entertaining in that critique of the art world. Oh my and God, I, and I, I think loved that it. If, I, think if, I think Ford's real strength is in visual composition. Right, He knows how to photograph people in very interesting ways. He does not know how to edit them in filmic ways. I mean, this movie is just overwhelmed by close-ups. And I think really to the detriment of the story, it's like reading a, a novel with a sent every sentence ends in an exclamation point. Ultimately, you get worn out by these close-ups. They're not kind of carefully placed. But I think in that opening sequence where, you know, we see the full body of these women, the camera's not moving. We're not trying to move forward in any story. We just see these very obese women wearing absolutely nothing, or maybe there's like a party hat on one of them, uh, and they're smiling. They're one of the few characters that smile. I don't know if anyone else smiles in the movie. And they're gyrating, you know, very sexually. And I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff wrapped up in that opening sequence, not least this is a world that values appearance, and here are smiling people who clearly are not self-conscious at all. But I think it also speaks to Ford, right? As a fashion photographer, if you think about the tradition of fashion photography, I'm thinking, of course, about someone like Helmut Newton, who's the first person who uh, jumps to mind. There, There's always, you know, even when you're photographing for Anna Wintour and this very high culture and women who are quite skinny in haute couture, there's always an interest in the weird, in the wacky, right? If there weren't, we wouldn't remember Deanne Arbus's name. Is Ford exploiting or making fun of those women in the opening sequence? I don't think he is. I do think he's making fun of the contemporary art world, which is making making these women into a a spectacle to benefit all of these, you know, very skinny people who are probably drinking Soylent, if that, and walking around a gallery in matching black dresses and black pants. And who are always so clothed, right? Everyone in the art world is immaculately dressed. Oh, but of course. We, would, we could never imagine them being, you know, making themselves as vulnerable as those women in the opening sequence to take off their clothes and to actually expose themselves to the viewer and to people around them. These people wear beautiful clothing, but it's as a shield to protect themselves from, you know, as, as armor against the vituperation of this, like, very vicious society in well, which they live. And, and from being, I think it's also, you know, this wonderful criticism that I found. So, I mean, I, I said to you, Tom, and, and I would stand by this, that I saw this uh, in some ways as a, sort of a dark comedy. Um, and, and I found the parts about the contemporary art world just so savory and so hilarious to behold. Um, because it's also, you, you get people who are in the contemporary art world, who, and I don't want to make generalizations, but I'm going to make a huge generalization generalization who not only are you know within the world of art history which is already kind of uh severed from humanity and the human condition but then within contemporary art and so of course the example that i always go to is i know someone on the new york gallery scene who is like an avid social climber and the last time i saw this person they were talking about an artist who really is engaging with the human condition and i said what does that mean and they said oh he he works with burkas in his art. And I think of this over and over again when I think of critiques of, of the contemporary scene. You know, this um, 
these people who are so um, so disengaged and so far away from often um, the artists they represent and the art that they profess to be interested in. You know, maybe, maybe I didn't give this movie enough credit as a, as a kind of sickly satirical critique of the art world because I'm kind of digging, reflecting about this. I love how the scariest moment in the movie for me takes place within the art world story. And it's actually an intersection of the West Texas story and the art world. It's one of the few jump scares. It's when the villain of the West Texas story kind of appears mm-hmm. on the baby monitor phone of one of the gallery owners. And it's it's really funny because this woman is absurd wanting to connect with her child by just watching it on by phone. iPhone app, yeah. But it's also legitimately terrifying. I mean, I jumped out of my seat and I already, I knew it was coming. Um, I, I found that a very effective square and I love that it comes in the context of the art world. We only have a minute left and I want to make sure to get in this call and response, which I've been practicing all day. When I say Michael Shannon, you say Michael Shannon, Michael Shannon, Michael Shannon, <laughs> Michael Shannon is so good in this He's movie. He's so good. He's so good. For a movie with some pretty mediocre to bad acting, whether intentional or not, Michael Shannon as Sheriff Bobby Andes. Oh my God. Yeah, he's so he, good. he is fantastic. I wholeheartedly endorse this movie, um, but a large part, I think maybe 98, maybe 99% of that is Michael Shannon is so good. Um, just the, his lines, like the way he delivers sort of these quick zingers um, within a movie where, uh, you know, I said this before, but um, the dialogue is really not good. A lot of the love story is not good. It's all in his delivery. Right? Oh, yeah, but. absolutely. I, I mean, he this is someone who could make, you know, like a, a carrot with hummus look really good. So he makes this movie look really good. <laughs> and, and he's I, not a particularly new or or different character. I mean, this is a, a sheriff who is dying of lung cancer, but also very interested in tracking down all of the criminals that kind of the corrupt DA let through because of political machinations. But, you know, he is someone who's kind of within a character stock type like everyone else. But the way that he delivers this this grizzled West Texas sheriff is just so delightful. And so, I mean, he is like the embodiment of the masculinity that Jake Gyllenhaal's character will never be. Not that he's a good character. And he knows it and he flaunts it. And it's just so good. It's so good. Um, Any last thoughts on Nocturne? Is this something you recommend? I think you started off by saying yes, but do you still feel yes? Yeah, I absolutely recommend it. Um, If you're prone to night terrors, cover your eyes around the the 20-minute mark. But but I highly, highly recommend this movie. So Nocturnal Animals is playing at the Downtown Criterion Theater. Uh, From now for the foreseeable future, Lucy Gelman, host of Kitchen Sink and station manager for WNHH. Thank you so much for coming on the show to chat about it. Thank you, Tom. Okay, you can find a complete archive of Deep Focus shows at deepfocusradio.com. Coming up next is Elisa's Culture Cocktail, but let's go out on a bit more of Ellison Jackson. How about a song that we haven't heard before, Man from <laughs> Man from Lowell. I, I do love this song. All right, we'll catch up with you next week.